Right, are you all ready? Yeah. Say, I'm ready. I'm ready. So if you're ready, you've got to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, I believe it is, or 20 and 21. You all there? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote something on the board and something absolutely sparked in my mind. Are you all ready? You ready to hear this? You ready? You got your listening ears on. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. It says there, Now he who establisheth us with you and anoints us or establishes us in Christ and anoints us is God. Okay? Is that what your Bible says? So now he who establishes us with you, together with you, Paul is talking about himself and the Christians. He says that you be established in Christ. And my prayer for this church is, as I've begun to study this, is more and more and more, I'm praying it for myself and I'm praying it for you, that you will be established in Christ. Established in Christ. Everybody say, in Christ. We need to be established in Christ. We don't just visit there. We mustn't just go there on occasions like, help Jesus, you know, and quickly run to the in Christ. But no, we need to be established in Christ. Everything is about in Christ. So we sang a song now where we just sang and said, you came to fix our broken lives. The way he did it was to pick you up and to put you in Christ. Because his life, there's nothing wrong with it. So the way he fixes you is by putting you in Christ. So 2 Corinthians 1. So now he who establishes us together in Christ and anoints us. You cannot be anointed if you're not in Christ. And the more anointed you want to be, the more established you need to be and then it says and then he gives us his spirit or he seals us with his spirit is that right and then he puts the seal he seals us with it then he puts his spirit in our hearts as the earnest okay that niv says deposit so let's just call it the earnest of the spirit okay so in christ he anoints us seals us gives us the spirit as the earnest the anointing is something that comes upon us. It's something that enables us. It's something that qualifies us. You cannot have the Spirit without being in Christ. The in Christ bit is very, very important. So I want to just touch on it this morning, and we might jump into next week and carry on with it. But He anoints us, sets the Holy Spirit on us as a seal, and then gives us the Spirit as an earnest. The seal is a twofold thing. Number one, when He seals us in the Spirit, basically what He's doing is everything that He's done in us, He seals it so that you don't lose it. And it was just like when Jesus was put in the tomb, they rolled the stone and they put a seal on it because they wanted Him to stay in there. Let's keep it there. And so the seal of the Holy Spirit is to protect the work of God that is inside of you. Is that good? And it's done by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says to Timothy two or three times, he says, God, the good deposit that is in you. He says it again the second time. The third time, he says, God, the good deposit that is in you with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so we need to guard the good deposit. The seal does another thing. The seal is a certification. When you get a diploma from a decent university, they've got a wax seal that they put the wax on and they embed it, emboss it with a seal. And basically that is a certification of authenticity. In other words, it's saying this seal is the real deal. Good? So look at the person next and say, you're the real thing. You're the real deal. So the second thing the Holy Spirit does is to seal you and to certify you as a genuine representation of Jesus, the anointed one. Amen? So look at the person next to you and say, you are a legitimate Christian. Now, the reason why I'm stressing that is because there is somebody, and he's got little horns, and he's a red suit, and he's got a little tail, and he's got a fork, and he comes to try and tell you that you're not really a Christian. You know, you're not legitimately a Christian. You know that little guy? We've got to just keep him where he is, to hell with the devil. And so the seal of the Holy Spirit is very important. And the third thing is the Spirit is the earnest, the deposit. When you go and buy a car or a TV or something and you put a deposit down, 
what you're doing is you're securing the purchase, guaranteeing the final payment. Is that okay? Now, I want to tell you all that the Holy Spirit has done in you. All of what you have is at best still a deposit. Now, the thing is, when you make that final payment on your car or your house, it's the same substance as the deposit. In other words, what God is saying is that he will give you the rest of the same of what you have, and that is more of the Holy Spirit. Is that good? And so, so you will get the rest. The rest of that spirit, the spirit of earnest, you can look it up in Ephesians 1, you can look it up in 2 Corinthians 5, and you will see that the final installment of the spirit of God is so full and so powerful that it will change and save your soul, but it will also redeem your body, and your body will move from a mortal body to an immortal body. And so that immortality is a big thing. So um, Annalise put me on a group, and there's some people, uh, one of the guys is this Amish community in America, and uh, somebody is debating with him basically, and he said, I view the fact that, he said, my personal opinion, I'm immortal already because I will live forever. Just go and look in the dictionary, and you will see <laughs> that immortality means this physical body will live forever. Yeah. Not that it will die and corrupt, and then your spirit will live forever. Mortality is this body. We are mortal beings. And so when this dies, we are not mortal anymore. We are spirit. The spirit part goes, but then it becomes subject to corruption. But the earnest of the spirit, the final deposit, read Ephesians 1, read 2 Corinthians 5. When that happens, the mortal shall put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15. Is that good? So that's just the beginning. So Paul talks about the fact that, you know, he's given us the seal, the earnest, and he's anointed us. But all of this only happens if we are in Christ. And so we need to be established. Theologians began to look at Scripture and debate. Because one of the great issues for a lot of the great theologians was this. How can a holy God... Just come to a sinner and say, you are justified, your sins are forgiven. How can a holy God, a righteous God, how can a truthful God just come to sinners and say, your sins are forgiven, you are righteous? Because it sets up a conflict within his character. He cannot act solely on the basis of love as much as he loves us. He cannot just say, well, I will have mercy coming out of his love and grace and whatever else you want to write. Because there is a side of God's character that is called justice and righteousness. So he simply cannot just acquit us. He simply can't just say, oh, you know, I love them so much. I'll just forgive them. Because of. And so there was this tension that they saw between the love and the justice of God, or the mercy and the justice of God. And so for them was, how is this reconciled? How is this conflict within the character, the nature of God? How is it resolved? And uh, Martin Luther, John Wesley, and many others discovered it in the book of Romans. When they read Romans, they saw the answer. So the apostle says, the important thing is that I need to introduce to you. And so the first thing we've got to look at is this word, law. We've got to look at that word law. Now with the preaching of grace, a lot of people thought, you know, no more law. Paul tells us that the law is righteous, it's good, it's from God. It was powerless, yes, in that it didn't take into account our sinful nature. But the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, still represents the character and the nature of God. But the law, the law, the law is still there. The explanations of the law are, you know, something that is taken away. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, there is a righteous requirement of the law that needs to be fulfilled. Because the law is a reflection of the character and the nature of God. It reflects His holiness. In the law, His holiness is reflected. Is that okay? And so we've got to look at the whole thing of the law. 
So now we're just going to park that word law there, and then I'm going to just start. Romans chapter 1. Are we all ready? In Romans chapter 1, after the introduction, Paul talks about two revelations that are coming from heaven. In fact, one he talks about is from God, and the other one specifically he says is from heaven. So in Revelations chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let's just say that word together, believe. What's another word for belief? Faith. All right, so it's the power of God unto salvation. Then he says, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. Now, I need to throw this in here, because why does he say to the Jew first, then to the Gentile? Just as a side, because privilege always implies responsibility. And God first came to the Jews, first gave them the revelation. So he comes to them first to give them an opportunity first. Because he talks about judgment coming first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So the more privileged you've been, the more responsible you are. Is that okay? And so privilege implies responsibility. So it's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Then he says this, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. It's revealed. So the whole story of the gospel is about Jesus, but there's a revelation of the righteousness of God. In the gospel. And so he goes on to talk about it in verse 18. He says, but the wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness that people get into. There it is. Who suppress the truth by wickedness. Who suppress the truth by wickedness. So there's two revelations that came out with the arrival of the gospel. And the first was, it was a revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel. Secondly, at the same time, it was a revelation of God's action against wickedness. How is that? I don't want to get into that too much, but it is this. Because Jesus said to the disciples, go and baptize people. Go and baptize them. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. But whoever believes not, they remain in their condemnation. So Paul goes on in the rest of the chapter. So in other words, let me finish that because I'm running ahead of myself because that's not the point. I'm throwing too much in. So in other words, what Paul was saying is this. So let me, let me go back. When Jesus came, he talked about the fact that he didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. But he said, but there is a judge. But even God is not going to judge. He said, what is going to do the judging? He said, the word that I spoke will judge him at the last day. In other words, the acceptance or the rejection of the gospel will be the final arbiter, the final judge. And so when Paul talks about the revelation of the two, he's talking about the fact that the righteousness of God is going to become manifest. But so is the judgment of God because people will either accept or reject the gospel. So the rest of chapter 1, he talks about a degeneration of mankind without the gospel. God will hand them over to the depraved mind. They will exchange the glory of the creator for created things. Have you ever read Romans? Okay. So you understand what I'm talking about. He says men will change natural relations with women and men will burn for men. Women will burn for women. And he talks about this degeneration without the gospel. But listen, the rest of the book of Romans is about those who accept Christ. Amen? Going from glory to glory. Woohoo! So the gospel is the power to change. So now, Paul deals with two things in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3. He talks about the fact that there's two streams of revelation. I really hope you're getting something out of this. Because if you can follow this and you can get it and be established in Christ, we're still talking about days of Pentecost. Anointed, sealed, earnest. Two streams of revelation. Number one. It's to those outside of the word. 
he calls them the Gentiles, who did not have the patriarchs, who did not have the law, who did not have the encounters with God. The unbelieving world outside. There's another stream of revelation. And that's those who have the word. Paul says this. Those outside of the word, God used two streams to speak to them. And the first stream, he says, was the created universe. Let's call it the created world. Paul says this. For from or since the creation of the world, God's two invisible qualities have been revealed in the created order, in the creation of the world. Even those who've never ever been in a church, never heard the gospel, never had the word of God preached to them or never had access to the word. He says there is a revelation that comes through creation. And in creation, God's two invisible qualities. Number one, his eternal power. Number two, his divine nature, says the NIV. The King James says his Godhead is reflected in the created world. So you can see that then in Romans chapter 1. I think it's around 13, 14, somewhere over there. But then in Psalm 19, David talks about that in the heavens you can see his handiwork. It says day to day it pours forth speech and night after night it's releasing revelation. So the created world, the created order is speaking volumes about God. Is that good? So Paul says the second thing is the moral world. The moral world. And this you can find in Romans chapter 3. Okay? You have to just believe me that it's there. Because we don't have time. He says the moral world. He said the moral world. So he's talking to the Jews now. That chapter is very much about the Jews, but he includes this bit. And he says, if you have got the law, and the Gentiles don't have the law, but they do by nature the things that the law requires, they show they're a law unto themselves. He says their consciences acquitting them and then other times defending them. So he says those who are real Jews, true Jews, are not just those who have the law but do the law and fulfill the law. All right. And so he's saying what they're showing is that there is a morality that is resident in them. And that is a reflection of God. Because natural man in himself would not have any morals. No morality whatsoever. Romans chapter 1. So here's some answers. So the moral world. The moral world. Okay? This moral world. It's something that we need to look at. So in other words... I want to just put these in a positive first before I show you what Paul says. There are many times I've been asked the question, and I've referred to this. Now I'm giving you all the answer. A lot of people come and say, you know, how can God, you know, if he's a God of justice, send someone to hell if they've never heard the gospel? Well, he's preaching through the creation. He's preaching through creation. Now, God is not unkind, unfair, unjust. God is not a killer and a murderer. God is not looking to send people to hell. He's doing all that he can to get people to heaven. That's why he sent his one and only son to die. He's trying to get people into heaven. That's why even if they live without Jesus their whole lives, and in their last breath they go, Jesus, because they heard somebody once, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? And so, so he says, listen, in every cultural group, in every people group, in every country, in every nation, there is morals. There is a moral code written or unwritten that they live by. Where did they get that moral code? Basically, there's not a people group on the face of this earth that doesn't say something like, we need to love one another. Where did they get that from? Isn't that right? doesn't matter how watered down it got. There's a moral. 
And so before God sends anyone to hell, he will first see, did you ever hear the word? Did you ever read the word? Was the gospel ever preached? No. All right. What did you see of my character nature in the universe? How did you respond? In your ethnic group, were there any morals? How did you respond? I've said this before. Even the cannibals had morals. It's like, I can eat you, but I can't eat anyone from my tribe. That's, that's not a done thing. That's like kissing your sister. You know, it's amazing. You're in my tribe. He doesn't get hungry and he, he doesn't salivate. You know, you're not in his tribe. Sure. Steak. And so based on that response, is that good? Because even in that group of people, their consciences condemn or acquit. Everybody following me? So now just let's walk through this thing with the apostle, great apostle Paul. I enjoyed this so much. I must have put 80 or 90 or 100 hours of study into this. It was, it was awesome. Morning to night, late at night and early in the mornings I've been studying and reading. Because and, I want to just get to this bit here. Legal. God is not legalistic. He's legal because of his justice. So Paul says this, right, that's the world outside of the word. Let's look at you, you Jews. You are really privileged. You got the word. You got the patriarchs. Abraham is your father. So let's talk about you. So you say that you guides, you have the light, your instructors, your teachers. You say all of these things. But how is it then that the things you condemn them for, those Gentiles out there, you're still doing the same thing? How is it? It's not just in the having of the law. It's in the fulfilling of the law. It's in the doing the law. And he said, you are guilty exactly the same as them. So Paul comes to this conclusion towards the end of chapter 3. And he writes and he says, well, you guys, you're sinning. You've got the law, but you're not fulfilling the law. You're not doing it. You're condemning everything in those people, but it's in amongst you too. You are doing it. He says, so what is the conclusion? He says, the whole world is guilty. One translation says, God has bound the whole world over to sin. In other words, he's looked at those outside of the word. And he's looked at those who have the word. And he says, you're all sinners. You're all guilty. There's no one righteous. Not even one. So that the whole world may be accountable to who? To God. Why? Because he is the legal, righteous, holy, truthful, just God. And so in that sense, he is the legal judge. The only righteous judge. Is that okay? And so Paul talks about it and he says, this revelation of the word as well. You're still doing the same thing. So he comes to the conclusion. Jew and Gentile alike are all guilty. Now I'm going to just say a couple of things here. And... Uh, Paul is not saying you are prodigals. He's saying you are criminals. He's not saying you are prodigals. He's saying you are criminals. You are guilty of contributing, of sinning against the law of God. Thus, you are guilty of sinning against God. The whole world. The whole world, Jews included. Not just prodigals, criminals. Because there's two aspects to sin. There's the legal aspect, and then there's the moral aspect. Legally, it's contravention of the law. Every country, every society, every group, Written or unwritten, it's got a set of rules. Every family, written or unwritten, it's got a set of norms, rules. So if you break it, you are a transgressor. The legal is because you've sinned against a holy God. 
The moral is because sin is pollution. So you're not just legally on the wrong side of God, but really deep down, I'm a good person. No, no, no. Sin is pollution. And it's into all of this that Jesus steps. All of this. Hopeless picture. Dark diagnosis of the whole world. It's into all of this. All guilty, all sinners, all condemned, all guilty as charged, all. And then Jesus comes. Paul says this in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the holiness of God, but are justified, next part I think it says, freely, by the grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. It goes on to say that he is the propitiation. He is the atonement for our sins. In other words, he paid the price for our sins. He came and he died for our sins. Now we need to just talk about him a little bit. Can I? I don't want to bomb your mind out, but I want us to just get to a point this morning. That point will be where you can't take anymore. So I'm going to push a little bit, okay? Stretch your mind. Shake your head. And so it was into this picture that Jesus steps, Paul says. He became the, the atonement. So in the Ark of the Covenant, you know that box that was in the tabernacle, the one that had the angels over the top. On top, there was an atonement cover. It was a lid on the box, but it had a rim on it that was an inch or more, a couple of inches high. And the reason why is because it was like a big tray, and it was into that tray that the blood of the lamb was poured, so that there literally was a little sea of blood over the box where the law was kept. That cover was called the atonement cover. Another word for it was the mercy seat. So in other words, what God was saying is when I look at the blood, that is the price for your sins. Is that okay? And so Jesus came and he died for us. Now Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to it. He says, God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we, the sinners, might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now listen, church, listen. That was a legal transaction. That was, this that happened here was lawful and legal. Somebody paying the price for someone else. I don't know if you ever saw it. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. We won't ask for a show of hands. You know, you're going along and then stop. 70 and a 60 zone. No show of hands. No show of hands. No show of hands. Okay. I don't know if you saw that video that went viral in America. Did you see that one? Where the policeman pulls his lady over for speeding. And she was like, oh, I don't have money. And he's going, yeah, but you were, you were, you, it's illegal what you're doing. You were speeding. He wrote the ticket. But listen, he has a policeman who understands law, legal. And he said, I understand you don't have money, but I am duty bound to fulfill the law. He wrote the ticket, took money out of his pocket, put it with the fine, gave it to the lady. He said, go and pay. He paid for it himself. That is a policeman who knows the law. When revival comes, it's going to happen in South Africa. Thank you, Jesus. I have had it once where I was driving, and I had my big rosary and crucifix on. And they stopped me, and, and they said, mm, Pastor, you, you, know, you were speeding and all this kind of thing. Uh, I mean, you were speeding. Uh, sir, you were speeding. And then he looks and he says, are you a priest? Yes, yes, I am. Listen, Father. You need to drive slower. Okay, you can go. You can go. Bless you, my son. And I drove a bit saying, that is not fair. That is not fair. I said, just wear a crucifix. 
you'll be a mother. <laughs> Amen? So you understand a policeman has not got the legal right just to show mercy and let you go. Legitimately, he should fine you. What God did was he didn't just go, oh, shame, you know, sweep their sins under the carpet. He says, there's a legal contravention. My justice, my legalness, my holiness has been contravened and transgressed. But I'll tell you what, I will pay the price. Is that okay? So he paid the price by the blood of Jesus. So it was into all this. So sin is legal and moral. I can't remember where I am. But it's okay. Let's just carry on. So we need to see the legality of the cross. Always legal, always lawful. So Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. There were sins committed from Adam's time. God didn't act on it. He allowed it to continue, but he did cover it. Prophetically covered it with the sacrifices of goats, different animals, bulls. So it was covering prophetically in anticipation of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now you can read it in Romans chapter 3. He says, God in his forbearance, his patience, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. And now also in the present time, it's his justice so that God can be just, legal, holy, right, truthful, and the justifier of him who has faith. In other words, that legally I can declare you innocent. I've got to do it legally as I'll contravene my own character. Are you all following me? So he's just and he's the justifier. The incredible thing is this. Let's just backtrack to 2 Corinthians 5 or 17. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. Listen. God did not make Jesus a sinner. He who knew no sin is not a sinner. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. In other words, he was the sin offering. Is that okay? So there's two aspects here. So the moment he was made the sin offering, legally before God, he was guilty. Morally in himself, he was righteous. But then when he died on the cross, he satisfied the whole legal aspect. God's justice, God's mercy. He's just and the justifier of us who believe. Okay? And so we need to understand that Paul talks about something. When he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus and us being in Christ, Paul is talking about a mystical union. If you read C.H. Spurgeon, one of the great preachers, if you read many others, they talk about the mystical union between Christ and the believer. It's mystical. How can we explain it? I'm explaining all the, the mechanics around it, but, but there comes a point where there is this union between us and Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. God, he has a mystical union. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So Paul is trying to explain to us this, this somehow what Jesus did becomes ours. And when we're united to that, we're in him, and then we have everything of his. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 5, let me explain this mystical union. Let me explain it to you. Let me explain it in the negative, first of all. Where did sin come into the world? How did it happen? And then he takes us back to our original parent. And he says this. One man's disobedience brought judgment and punishment and sin to the whole world. He says that man was Adam. And we all know it was actually Eve's fault. We all know. But for the sake of peace, we will not mention it again that it was Eve's fault. And so 
Adam sinned, and so sin and all of its consequences came on everybody. That's why I don't go for the generational curses, because I don't remember what my great-great-great-grandfather did. And I don't need somebody to try and get a word of knowledge or a prophecy about it. I just bypass them all. I bypass them all. And I say, just take me back to Adam. Because in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all live. In Adam, all cursed. In Christ, all blessed. And so, if we teach people, you're in Christ. You're a new creation. Old is gone, new is gone. We need to teach it. We need people to be established in Christ. Is that okay? So Paul is saying there's a mystical union between you, and he skips all the generation. He goes right back to our first forefather, and he says, it all came from Adam, because Adam sinned. But listen, let me just explain. I want to explain for those of you in Christ. He says, another father came, another generational head, and that person is Christ. So by one man's obedience, all are made righteous. Is that okay? And so he says, in Adam we all die. In Christ we all live. We've borne the image of the earthy man. Now we bear the image, the likeness of the man from heaven. One is a living soul. The other is a life-giving spirit. Are you all happy now? The picture's getting better from here. You're just very quiet here, but you're getting happier here. Paul talks about another mystical union. He says, think about it, you Jews. When you came up out of Egypt and you went down through the Red Sea and the cloud was over you, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, you were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. There was a mystical union between the people of Israel and Moses. You were all in Moses. He says it many times throughout the Bible. You're in Moses, meaning you're in the law. You're under his leadership, his guidance, his teaching. You're under his doctrine. You're under his influence. You're under his spirit. So you're all in the law. You're in Moses. And that's not going to help you either. Let's think about another mystical union. It's a lot here in this room. It's called marriage. The two become one. It's a mystical union. Two are one. How is it that you can be sitting there thinking something and you turn to your wife just about to say it and she's, you know what I was thinking? She's thinking exactly what you were thinking. Because two become one. There's a union. Is everybody following me? But all of you are in another union here. It's called the body of Christ. Is that okay? We're in Christ. So we're under his headship, his influence, his leadership, his doctrines. We're in Christ. But more than that, that it's a thing, a thing of the Spirit. It's this incredible mystical union. And it's all legal. The great thing about this, and I want to try and conclude it here this morning, is this. Paul takes us to chapter 6. Talks about our baptism. Takes us into chapter 7. And he talks about the mystical union we had with the law. He said we were married to it. We had children with the law partner. And the children, the fruit of that union was death. He says there's only one law, one principle that can break a marriage, and that's death. So he says, so if one partner dies, the other's free. And so Jesus steps in to represent the law, fulfills the law, dies, and we are set free from the marriage to the law. But he didn't stay dead. He rose up again, and he said, will you marry me? And the bride of Christ said, we will. I do, I do, I do, I do. Amen? We said, I do. Then we became the bride of Christ. Paul says, I betrothed you to one, to Christ. And he says, now the fruit of this union is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Woo! Amen? And so, so thank you. Thank you. Thank, 
Thank you. I know it was my singing more than my teaching that did it. But anyway, and so this mystical union, he put us into Christ, and now we're free, and, and it's absolutely awesome. And so chapter 7, he describes a little bit of that marriage to the Lord. He describes what a, an abusive partner the law was. He says, I was in this constant struggle, the tyranny of the law. Because I could see it's righteous and holy. I could see it's requirements were brilliant. But every time I tried to do it, I found myself doing the opposite. He says, I discovered there's another two laws inside of me. One's going, and it's the law of the mind. It's going, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And there's another law inside of me, and it's the law of sin in the flesh. It's going, no, I don't. No, I don't. And I won't. You know, it's like your children when you say, sit down. They sit down, but they're still standing up on the inside. And you know it by the look on their faces. I might be sitting down with my body, but still standing. <laughs> and so Paul says this, and I was trapped in this body of the law. He ends chapter 7 by saying this, who shall rescue me? From this body of death. Thanks be to God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Woo. Then he starts Romans chapter 8. And this is where we're going to park the bus until next week. There's lots more. So he says. There is therefore now no. No what? Condemnation. For those, carry on, who are, who are legally, lawfully, righteously. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, a new principle of God, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now I'm going to give you a few words. Okay, a few words. Condemnation. So the first thing that condemnation means, giving you four words. Number one, it means you are no longer condemned to be a prisoner in a body that acknowledges God but can't serve God. I'm going to say that again. Woo. So I know people in ACF don't say it, but it's like, well, I just couldn't help myself. You know, I was born this way. You just have to accept it's my nature. Okay, it's very quiet, so it doesn't... Okay, it must be someone on live stream. You know... You know, when somebody goes, you do this, you always do this. Well, it's time you accept me for who I am. This is how I was born. Now, Paul is taking away that crutch and saying, you are a new creature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a, the old has gone, the new has. So he says, you are no longer compelled to sin. You're now in a place where you can choose not to sin. Before you couldn't. Now you can. Amen. You have overcome sin. Because he goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, because God in sending Jesus condemned sin, and that's got two aspects. <laughs> Number one, he condemned sin in that that he judged sin to be sinful, number one. But number two, he condemned sin and said, I break your power over those who are in Christ. You are not in control anymore. He condemned sin in sinful man and in the flesh. Is that okay? And so the word condemnation, there is therefore now no condemnation, means you are no longer a prisoner and captive to sin. You are now master over sin. Remember God's word to Cain who killed Abel? 
said, sin is crouching at your door and it seeks to master you. You must master it. But it could never happen until Jesus came. Now you can master sin. Good. Number one. Number two. Number two, condemnation means that because you are now made the righteousness of God in Christ, legally you are right with God. It's a forensic courtroom term. You could take the work of salvation and go to a good court and present the work of salvation, and they would themselves have to say, you are righteous, because he paid the price. It's forensic and legal. There is therefore now no condemnation. means that you can bring your conscience before God. When your conscience condemns you and tells you that you are sinful, you can legitimately, legally, justifiably, righteously, truthfully say, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. And you can quieten condemning thoughts. Number three, you are not condemned as a sinner. You are judged. I'll carry on with this next week. You are judged by God himself as righteous. Number four, the end result of condemnation is damnation. Damnation means you are condemned to hell. You're damned. So there's no damnation. Is that good? Legally, justifiably, righteously, truthfully, you're the righteousness of God in Christ. Now I just want you to think about it as we finish. I want you to think about it. God made him who knew no sin, morally perfect, but for our sakes legally in wrong standing with God. Made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Wow. There's no place. So let me try and act it out. It means that the whole work of salvation was both legal and moral. Number one, it answers some of this. Number one, it was legal in the sense that God did it in accordance with his justice. Number two, it was moral because it was also a demonstration of his love. For God so loved the world. Paul says, I look at that love and I'm constrained, compelled by his love to now preach the gospel. The love of God could not change us on its own. There had to be the legal. That's why couples living together can't say, well, we love each other. And after all, at the end of the day, that's more important than the piece of paper. No, 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 no. That piece of paper is important. It makes it legal before man and God. The piece of paper is important. Listen to me. The piece of paper, you've got to understand it to understand this. That this piece of paper that God did here was important. That I'm in right standing legally with God. Therefore, I can come in union with God. Okay, let's move on from there. It's unpopular. So what was I talking about? Let's act it out. So it was legal and moral. So here it is. Here it is. And so the whole work of the atonement was legal and moral. And in the process, everything God does is legal and moral because legally he puts me right with God. And morally he changes me. Changes my character. Changes my nature. And he says, you're sanctified. You're justified. You're holy. So I just want to say that when God looks at you, and I've done this before, he doesn't look at you in the natural and then in the spiritual. God doesn't look at you and say, you look like sinners. Where's my blood of Jesus glasses? Oh, okay, now you look like Jesus. No, he doesn't need blood of Jesus glasses because the work that he did in you is real, legal, and permanent. Is that okay? He looks at you and he sees you are saints. 
He doesn't need blood-colored, tinted glasses to look at you. He goes, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. So it means that I'm as righteous as God is with himself. That's how righteous I am. All right, so we're finishing. So when he says no condemnation, it means there's absolutely no guilt as far as God is concerned. There's no more charges as far as God is concerned. Because Paul says in Romans 8, who will bring any charge against the elect of God? No one. There's only one who will bring a charge against you. Who will bring any charge against the elect of God? It's God who justifies. It's Christ who died for you more than that rose from the dead. It's not the Holy Spirit because He's inside of you testifying that you are a son and a daughter of the Most High God. Okay? So there's no charge. It means there's complete acquittal. Complete there's a, a brother that I'm walking the road with and praying with him. A false charge was brought against him. A serious charge. And uh, it's been going for more than a year. And he's, it's cost him hundreds of thousands. The police have investigated. And there's just no evidence. But there's an advocate in the town who absolutely has taken an aversion to him because he's a believer and she is living in complete immorality. And she is keeping the case open against him. He's walking with a sword hanging over his head for more than two years. I pray with him regularly. The lawyers just want money, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and they do nothing. And all the time, he's not free because there's this docket sitting in the legal courtrooms somewhere in the system. That could be invoked at any time and he could be arrested at any time. And it's this judgment that's hanging over his head. And we're trying to find a good advocate if there's one who wants to take a good case and sort these wicked people out. But he walks around with that thing hanging over his head. He himself, morally, is righteous. But legally, he's in wrong standing with the law. Because of a false accusation. And that's how many Christians are walking around. Morally, God has set you right. But there's a legal question because of the accuser who's accusing you before God. And accusing you to your own mind. We've got to understand that when he said there's no condemnation, that docket was taken out of the system. Every charge was dropped. It was replaced with another docket that says, innocent, not guilty, righteous. And so legally you are right. And that's why Paul comes with all of this and he says, now, I want you to understand that any attempt by you, any attempt, to justify yourself with Christ in view of what he's done is illegitimate and illegal. You cannot get into works to set yourself right with God. It's an illegal process. It's illegal. The most legal, righteous thing that you can do at any time is say, Lord Jesus, thank you. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Stop trying to prove your own righteousness. Enjoy His in Christ. It's legal. It's just. It's holy. It's truthful. The greatest honor you can pay God and Jesus is to accept the forgiveness. Amen? And just receive what Jesus has done. And we'll pick it up here next Sunday. Paul introduces this word. He says, all this is by faith. The just shall live by faith. Moses summarized the Ten Commandments into 613 little laws. He says, if you can do all of these, 613, you can do the Ten. Nobody could do it. David comes along. 
And he says, well, when I, I look at the word, I can summarize it in 12. And he says, who may ascend his holy hill? He has got a clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't swear falsely. And he gives 12 things. Zaya comes along and he says, the humble servant who wants to walk right with God in Isaiah 11, he says, I see seven things. Spirit of wisdom and counsel and you know, understanding and might and all of these kinds of things. He lists seven. Micah comes along and his revelation is three things. He says, and what does God require of the old man except to love justice and do mercy and walk humbly before your God? Jesus comes and says, if you love God and love your neighbor, you fulfill the whole law. Paul comes along and he says, it's all by faith. The just shall live by faith. In Christ. In Christ. Amen. In Christ. And we need to understand it's a legal position and in Christ is everything. You have your breakthrough. You have healing. You have miracles. You have provision in Christ. Now I want you just to raise your hands very quickly. And if there's anything anything that you need healing for. I want you just to receive it now when we pray and, uh, and just speak healing out. You can put your hand on that area of your body where the thing is troubling you. And I'm going to just say it because I've been sensing it just for a while, that God is doing something with the physical senses. Amen? So in other words, if there's anything to do with eyesight, with hearing, with smell, with taste, but even touch, even if there's been damage in somewhere in your body and nerves are damaged, God is going to do a healing right now. If there's nerves damaged, any organ, any structural part of your body, it's in Christ. You have a legal, legitimate right to claim healing right now. It was all accomplished in Christ. How many of you can feel how the atmosphere just changed? There's healing in the place. Father, right now, speak a word of healing. Eyes that have become dim. Eyesight that's not 20-20. Hearing that's not perfect. I speak to that tinnitus, that buzzing in the ears. Father, I command that just to pop right now. Pop right now. In Jesus' name, that ear open that ear open the singing the buzzing in the ear goes right now in Jesus name come on something's happening something's happening just touch your ear if that's the case hands on your eyes if that's the case Father I just speak healing to these eyes and those watching live stream as well touch the screen if you can touch the device that you're watching on Father I speak to those eyes and I command them to open right now this is our legitimate right this is our legal inheritance Healing is the children's bread. Father, if it's smell, I command smell to be restored fully. If it's affected the taste buds, or if the taste buds have, have been, that sense of taste has, has failed, God, I command taste to come back in Jesus' name. Where there's a loss of feeling because of damaged nerves, Father, right now, I command those nerves to come alive. Come alive, come alive in the name of Jesus function to those fingers and those hands in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And I'm seeing somebody, I don't know if it was a severed finger, um, where some of the nerves were severed. I mean, your finger still works, but it's like it's lost some feeling. Might be live stream. Father, right now, just speak healing to that in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Keep drawing. It's by faith. Just keep taking. Keep taking. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, His holy healing presence on you, His power on your body, in the name of Jesus. Because we're the righteousness of God in Christ, every privilege that would belong to someone who fulfilled totally the law is ours. And the only one to do that was Jesus. So we can have all of the privileges. If something needs to change in your circumstances, your situation, let's believe now together. God, we just believe now for change in finances, change in employment situations, change 
increase, oh God, breakthrough. Because we are in Christ, we are highly favored. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Lord, I speak blessing of your people. Lord, I pushed it today. Lord, I'm determined for this truth to become established in us. Father, I want all of everybody, members and friends of ACF, to become established in Christ. That we know who we are and what Jesus has done. And so now, Lord, I speak blessing over each person. Blessing. Lord, by the Spirit, I just take them and place them under your hand. I associate them with all things good, all things God, and all things the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus. May they know exceptional favor. May they know great grace upon their lives. In the name of Jesus. As Jess says, unusual favor. Incredible favor of God. Father, your blessing in Jesus' name. We all agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Amen.